important to preface that conversation, we're just going to ask the question very broadly, what is worship? What is worship? Now, leading into this question, uh, I want to share a story of uh, experience that I had in the worship service about a year ago, and I know it was about a year ago because it was basically just before we picked the next several topics of the School of Discipleship. Um, and it, it was to say this like meta moment where I had this moment of realization as we were in the worship service that Christian worship is weird. It's bizarre in many ways. Now, I've grown up in the church, so it took me 30 some odd years, I won't tell you exactly how long, uh, 30 some odd years to come to that realization. But worship for Christians is bizarre. And what I mean is, if you've ever seen that episode where Mr. Bean goes to church, you've ever seen that? Okay, we'll YouTube it after this because it's, it'll, it'll give you something to reference here. But it's to say, if you were to come in off the street, having never been to a Christian worship service, you would encounter things that are rather bizarre. Let me explain. You come in, and all of a sudden, all these people that you don't know are staring at a screen, singing a song you don't know the tune to, and the words are saying rather bizarre things like, I love this random person that I cannot see, touch, taste, or hear, right? Um, in addition, we do these things like call and response, the thing that Wayne read. Whether you believe it or not, there's these bolded words that I'm now suddenly obligated to say, uh, tithing is an odd thing that somehow when that basket passes, whether you put something in or not, you feel guilty. Uh, the sermon, which is this period where somebody stands on the stage and talks at you for 30 to 45 minutes. I'm going to keep it to 30, all right? Um, and then this thing that kind of the service culminates in that we call a meal, but it's actually just a bite of bread and either wine or juice, depending on your preference. These things are bizarre. And let's acknowledge that. So if this is your first time ever in a church this morning, I get it. You are not alone in thinking that those things are weird. So as we ask the question... I want to just lay it all out there and say, what is worship? Why do we do these many things? Now, we're going to talk about those exact expressions of worship in the coming weeks, Sunday morning, from here forward. But as we address this broader question of, of what is it um, in its you know, most broad form, uh, what is worship, I, I want to recognize for a moment, that the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is not a dictionary. It is history. Specifically, it is the history of God's redemptive work in the world. So it's, it's actually a pretty rare thing that any of these terms get defined. Like, this means this. So when a definition is in the Bible, it stands out. And that's why we're going to focus in on Romans 12, 1 through 2 today, because Paul, in his letter to the Romans, gives us a definition of what worship is. So if you want to turn in your pew Bibles to page 947, uh, we'll also have it up on the screen. It's Romans 12, 1 through 2. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your written word and that it testifies to us not only of your unending work to redeem what we have broken, but also in communicating to us some of the most important things in life. And so as we lean into what it means to worship you, we pray that your spirit would give us strength for the task. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. This is a very short passage. It's two verses, and it is very, very dense. So to help us unpack what all God has for us in this passage this morning, what I want to do is give you a little bit of the context that this verse comes in in the letter, but also the context of Paul's original audience. So first, the passage context is actually very similar to Ephesians, what we've been going through thus far. And that is to say that Paul has spent Romans 1 through 11, those chapters that come before chapter 12, 1 through 11, unpacking the mystery of the gospel, which is Jew and Gentile reconciled to God in Christ. That is the mystery of the gospel. And where he does it in a little bit more succinct fashion in the book of Ephesians. Uh, In this particular letter to the Roman church, he spends 11 chapters unpacking that. So why does that matter? That matters because Paul's original audience is both Jew and Gentile. You see, in the uh, ancient world, uh, specifically the Roman world, um, Jews were scattered throughout the Greek-speaking world. And In many significant cities, Rome, Alexandria, Syrian, Antioch, there were large gatherings of Jewish people. And where they settled, they built synagogues for teaching and training, communal worship. Um, That was the purpose of their synagogues. And those synagogues were not for Jew alone. They were for Gentile as well. So, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, there were Gentiles that were learning about the true God, the living God, Yahweh. So much so that around 250 BC, something unprecedented happened. In human history that we know, the first religious text to ever be translated from its original language into another language happened. And it was the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that made the religious texts of the living God available to essentially the breadth of the world at that time. So when Paul writes this letter to the Romans, there's already a rich history in what we refer to as the Old Testament, what they would have called the Hebrew Bible at that time. And the Gentiles that would have been there would have fallen into one of three categories. 
One, we'll, we'll call the sympathizers. Those folks that appreciated what the Jews were doing, but did not themselves commit in any fashion. Um, you could kind of pick and choose your God in that day, go to any particular temple, and you know that was okay. Um, so the sympathizers were those that at least appreciated what the Jews were doing. Another category would have been the God-fearers. And this is actually a technical term that pops up in extra-biblical literature. The God-fearers were those folks who were committed to the living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, but did not get circumcised, participate in the sacrificial system, keep kosher, any of the distinctives of Jewish life. In our modern-day equivalent, these were the folks that were spiritual but not religious. All right? And then there were the full-fledged converts, those people who, though they were not born Jewish, had taken on the full aspect of what it meant to worship the Jewish God. And this verse that describes, that defines worship for us is rich meaning to every single person that would have heard this letter read. You see, and we have this slide here uh, that, that shows the Greek for this word. When Paul says your spiritual worship, which is, he means your body is presented as a living sacrifice. That word sacrifice is the Greek word thusia. So do we have that up on the screen? Okay. Uh, thusia. Thusia was any broad term for any sacrifice that was offered in any religion. So the Gentiles would have known if I walk into the temple of Artemis, I'm going to offer a thusia. If I walk into the, uh, you know, the synagogue for the, the Jewish God, I'm going to offer a thusia. That was just the generic term. But what the Jewish translators of the Hebrew Bible did was they connected thusia to an actual sacrifice in the Jewish cult. And it was the mincha. We have another slide for this as well. The mincha was the grain offering. And the grain offering wasn't necessarily a discrete offering in itself. It was like a component in all of the other sacrifices. And so in the morning and evening sacrifice, the mincha was a part of it. In the weekly sacrifice at the Sabbath service, the mincha was a part of it. The monthly sacrifice and the annual sacrifices, right? So on those annual sacrifices that happened on a, the first of a month on a Sunday, right? Like there was a lot of minha happening, okay? Um, so they, Paul was using this term thusia to connect those folks in his audience who were aware of the Hebrew translated into Greek to the minha. What does that mean for us with our worship? You see, the Gentiles would have known that the Jewish minha the Jewish thusia was dedicated entirely to the living God, Yahweh. You wouldn't offer it to Artemis or Dionysus. You wouldn't do any other God. It was the living God alone. So even though it was this generic term, the way the Jews used it was unique as almost a stand-in for their entire sacrificial system. So for the Christian, when we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, and that is our act of worship, we are saying that we are dedicated to one God and one God alone. 
For the Christian, then, there are no other gods and no other loves. So let's do this exercise real quick. I want to bring this point home. Picture the best teacher you've ever had. In your mind, recall back, you know, elementary, high school, college, you name it. What is the best teacher you ever had? You got it? Best teacher. What if this teacher said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Would they still be your favorite teacher? Probably not. Like, how dare they demand that adoration? They're not worthy of that. But when Jesus says that in Luke 14, 26, what Jesus is doing is actually appropriating Deuteronomy 6, 5. Jesus is applying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might to himself. Jesus is not a good teacher. Jesus is the one who deserves our adoration. He is the one that our worship is centered around. So ultimately, what does the mincha teach us? The grain offering, it shows us where our adoration properly belongs. But that's not all. You see, the Hebrew translators also applied thusia to another offering. We have this slide for you as well. The thusia was also connected to the zvach hashlamim, which means the peace offering. The peace offering. Now, this was a discreet sacrifice. This had a very specific purpose in the life of the Jewish cult. You see, what the peace offering did was it was the only offering that the offerer, the family who presented this sacrifice, participated in. You see, every other sacrifice, if you went to the priests and you gave a goat and some bread and some wine to be offered on your behalf, it was done on your behalf. You gave it and you went away. The priest would offer it and would participate in it with God. But the peace offering was unique in that the family stayed. They participated in the meal. This offering was not compulsory. As a matter of fact, it was the only one that was voluntary. All of the other sacrifices, there was some sort of triggering event that would require it, whether it was a, you know, a day of the month, whether it was some condition that you found yourself in, uh, but the peace offering was voluntary. And the family would choose to present this offering because it was a privilege to be in the presence of the living God. So when Paul uses thusia to connect us not only to the mincha, not only to remind us that our adoration is properly pointed at Jesus, but he is also using thusia to connect us to the peace offering because the peace offering is directional. It points us, it brings us into the presence of God. And so after all of this, we arrive at our definition. 
What is worship? Worship is, we have this on the screen as well. Worship is directional adoration. Worship is directional adoration. Is that up on the screen? Can we, can we put that up on the screen? Sorry. We're going we're gonna to leave that up there. Because that definition is really going to help us through the rest of this verse. So as those two sacrifices show us, worship is directional adoration. Now, what do we know about this directional adoration? Well, Paul tells us, uh, this is in verse 2, that there are only two directions. There are only two directions when it comes to worship. In Deuteronomy, there's the paths of the righteous and the wicked. In Proverbs, there's the path of the wise and the path of the foolish. But what verse 2 tells us is there's the path of the conformed and the path of the transformed. There are two directions. So what does that mean? Well, I like to think of being conformed as this passive exercise. We just are sort of fit into whatever is conforming us. I think visually of my seven-year-old nephew playing with Play-Doh. He's just cramming it into this mold, and it's that Play-Doh is being conformed through no effort on its own part. Um, in other words, it just sort of happens. But being transformed, on the other hand, is this active thing that we are participants in. Being transformed is an active molding. And the transformation that Paul envisions here touches every corner of our lives. As we'll look at in the coming weeks, this directional adoration transforms the way we work, who we date and who we marry, how we raise our children, the way we lament and rejoice, what we do with our money, the way we engage in politics, even the way we think, the thoughts that we have, all of it is transformed by centering our worship on Jesus. So if that is true, what makes that so hard? If that is true, what makes that so hard? Well, John Calvin tells us our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts are idle factories. So where we are made for our directional adoration to point to Jesus, because our hearts are idle factories, we point ourselves in a different direction. It's this passive thing because our hearts have that bent. So what are some ways in which we make idols? We don't typically have these little statues that we bow down to. That's not as literal as it was in Paul's day, but it, may, it doesn't mean it's no less true. Let me put it in the positive. It is as true today as it was then. So to help us assess what's going on with this uh, idol factory of our heart, I want to consider our definition of directional adoration in that we can go in the wrong direction or we can try and split directions. Now, we'll talk in the uh, class in the coming weeks about 
going in the wrong direction. But this morning, what I'd like to do is actually focus in on the ways that we can split directions, all right? So there are a few, I'm not saying this is a total list of possible ways that we split directions uh, with our worship, but uh, at least these four. And the first, I will convict myself, is we have a propensity to consume. We are consumers, for you know, lack of a better phrase. We consume media, whether it's TV shows or video games or uh, you know, news channel. I mean, you name it. We consume these things, and they, in some way, shape, or form, shape our loves. We pursue comfort, me time. And that shapes our adoration in a certain way. We pursue things like alcohol. You know, the next craft beer, my personal favorite. Or mommy juice, right? Like these are all things that we turn to rather than turning to God. Or, you know, if consuming is one way that we split directions... Another way that we split directions is, you know, kind of a historical way of saying it, is we believe that there is a secular and a sacred distinction. These things are sacred, and so they are dedicated to God. These things are secular, and therefore I get to choose what happens. There's a number of different ways that we do this, but what about our wallets? Do we bracket that off from the sacred? What about our ballots? Do we bracket that off from the sacred? What about our bedrooms? Do we bracket that off from the sacred? Or we attempt what I'll call bribing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going in this direction, which is away from Jesus, but you know, I go in this direction enough so that ought to balance out. It's, it's bribing. It's, it's trying to tip the scales. Or we heed voices other than God's. I'll term this accusation. We, we don't just hear accusation, we believe the accusation. What does that accusation sound like? Well, it is a voice that does not belong to God. And that voice says things like, no one loves you. That voice says things like, you are a failure. That voice says things like, your life doesn't matter. So if these things are so hard, and they are, and everyone in this room, myself included, is subject to our hearts being idle factories. So if this is so hard, why does Paul even say that directional adoration is possible? Why is it even possible? Well, Paul gives us the hint in verse 1. The act of offering our very lives to God is not done on our own effort but by the mercies of God himself. Uh, the last several weeks, we've actually had a couple people on stage. I was uh, you know, very proud. Uh, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask, what is it there for? Right. When you see a therefore, what is it there for? That's a great principle. All right. This is chapter 12. It comes on the heels of chapters 1 through 11. So Paul, talking about worship, makes no sense if this is where you start the letter. 
It makes sense only in the context of chapters 1 through 11. Let me give you a taste. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is where our right worship is centered. It's centered in the work of Jesus. Not us tipping the scales, not us creating our own voice to listen to. It's in the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. But Christianity is not just something to be saved from. Christianity is about being saved for something. And that's why we're not just transformed and then done. God says, boom, you're good, and then he's off on his next project, right? We are transformed, and that is a process that goes on for the rest of our lives. And that's why in verse 2, Paul says the fruit of this transformation is the gift of discernment. It is the ability to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in other words, when our adoration is moving in the direction of Jesus, we have the ability to discern Deuteronomy's righteous path. We have the ability to discern Proverbs' wise action. But again, it is only possible through the completed work of Jesus on our behalf. So when we are tempted to consume, Jesus says to us, I have living water that will quench your thirst. When we are tempted to bracket off parts of our lives, Jesus says, every square inch is mine. When we are tempted to bribe our way, Jesus says, I've already paid the price. And when we are tempted to hear and entertain that voice of accusation that says, no one loves you, Jesus shouts over our lives, I love you. When we hear, you are a failure, Jesus shouts, well done, good and faithful servant. When you hear your life doesn't matter, Jesus says, you matter to me. This transformation is an ongoing process. It is done in the completed work of Jesus, but it continues on throughout the course of our lives. Remember the mincha offered every day, Again, every week, again, every month, again, every year. It was a continual reminder to the Israelite that God is at work. But we also cannot forget the Zavach Hashlamim, the peace offering. This is a communal work. We do not worship alone, we worship together. And in fact, my worship is incomplete without you at my side. That is why we come together every Sunday morning to worship the living God. The temptation of our culture to be spiritual but not religious might get the mincha, but it misses the zavach hashlamim, the peace offering, the communal aspect of our Christian worship. Let me close with this story. When I was in college, I was in a um, 
professional organization, American Marketing Association. And we went to a national conference that, you know, rural Missouri school going down to Florida. We know no one. Our chapter was very small, so we didn't even have connections outside of our own school. So we go there with a group, and for reasons that I won't get into right now, although if you want to know, I'm happy to share with you, this was a very spiritually awful week of my life. Awful. And I was very raw at this particular time. Uh, suffice it to say, there was no directional adoration at Jesus that occurred that week. And so on the way home from Florida to Missouri, long car ride, we stop at a rest stop, and as we pull into the parking lot, I see a van that is very clearly for some church in the area. I don't remember the name of it, but it was a church. And I remembered thinking, oh God, thank you. Thank you. We went in, we ordered our, you know, and I'm kind of in a fog at this point. But I remember sitting down with my tray, I look up and I see a gentleman going to the counter to get a straw or some ketchup packets or something like that. And as he's walking, he just does one of these little, little shuffle up to the counter. And then he you know, walks back. And I remember in that moment knowing this man knew the love of God. I just knew. That church van, he was a member of that church. And so like a creepy guy, I followed him back. <laughs> I did, I did this. I followed him back, introduced myself to a large group, you know, at least 15. I mean, it was, they had packed that van for certain um, of people. I introduced myself and I said, I need to talk to you guys. <laughs> and I bawled, right? I cried, they cried, and we connected. And it was because this man was so full of the love of Christ, I could see it from across the room. And when we met and talked, and I was filled by the love of God because of their story, it didn't matter that they were a black church and I was a rando white guy from Missouri. It didn't matter because our love of God trumped everything. That is what our hope is for you here this morning, that you encounter the love of God in a way that changes you forever, not once, but for the rest of your life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your Son that makes true worship possible, that all of our counterfeit attempts at adoring all the wrong things, are redeemed in the blood of your Son, Jesus, and that through him we are made whole. We are connected to you and we are connected to each other in a way that will change us forever. We thank you for the gift of your community, and we pray that it would be a powerful and effective witness to the living God here in Wilmington. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.